Well, our scripture lesson today sits right in the middle of the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Let's share in God's good word together. Pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, uphold the holiness of your name. Bring in your kingdom so that your will is done on earth as it's done in heaven. Give us the bread we need for today. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Welcome, family and friends. What a great confirmation day. And welcome to all of the family and friends online all over the place. We are just a great celebration day. So let me ask you a quick question. How many of you here have taken Algebra 1 or 2 or Trigonometry? Anybody in here taken those classes? How many of you all just enjoyed them, just loved them? Some of my engineers, yeah, my front row fellows right here. My aerospace engineers, whoop, whoop. Uh, so here's the thing. I want you to think about this. Did, did algebra take a little bit of work? Did you have to actually think about it, spend some time on it, work on it? I would submit to you that understanding Jesus' teaching is more important than algebra. And it requires at least that much effort. Actually, it takes a lot more effort. Because it's the most important thing you can ever learn in your life. Jesus, the master of the universe, creator of heaven and earth, he has taught us how to pray. He has taught us how to live. And somehow, some way, we think that somehow we're just going to get it. It's just going to fall in our lap, like algebra does. <laughs> Following Jesus takes our best effort. And his teaching and the Lord's Prayer, you say, well, why in the world would you spend six weeks on the Lord's Prayer? Because we really ought to be spending about six years or the rest of our life. To mine the depths of what Jesus is teaching us how to live and how to be and to bring heaven to earth. Jesus has the answers to life, how to live. And that's why we celebrate confirmation today that Jesus has a wonderful life in this life and the next for you. And the person that we know as Jesus is not only running the entire universe. They can also teach you how to live today. Give you wisdom for the things that you're struggling with. Joy in the midst of hardship. Is it any wonder that his disciples asked him, Lord Jesus, teach us to pray? Because it was a chance of a lifetime. In the same way that John the Baptist had taught his followers how to pray. So, we're in the third week of our series on the Lord's Prayer to lead us right up into Easter. And we come to um, what seems on its face to be pretty simple, our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Well, how can that be complex? Well, because everything that Jesus says has layers to it, doesn't it? And Jesus will say things like, for those who have ears to hear, listen. For those who will see, will you understand? And the thing was, some did and some didn't. There's always more to Jesus 
than what comes to us in first reference. So in week one, we looked at the first line, our father. Our father is the loving God of who? All people, not just some. Throughout all time, both those who believe in him and those who do not. It doesn't change the fact that God is our father. And if God is our father, then you and I are brothers and sisters, along with every other person on the planet, brothers and sisters. And that changes how we live, how we relate, what our responsibilities are to one another. If God is father of all, then we are brothers and sisters to all. Reverend Adam Hamilton, who has a book we're using as part of the source material for this series, he says it like this. He says, we live in a world that is focused on my, mine, and me. But Jesus teaches us to pray, say it with me, our, us, and we. Our, us, and we. And in the early church, friends, for, at least for the first 300 years, there was no understanding, no, no concept of an individual salvation that you hear about in Western culture today. It, it, they simply wouldn't have understood it. It was not, it was not in their mind. Because salvation with, with Jesus, did he have one disciple? No, he had 12 there's nowhere in the Bible where somebody's just walking down the street and they, oh, now I know everything I need to know about God and Jesus and salvation. No, it never works like that. It's always in community, always in community. And so we have to get out of this my, mine, and me because Jesus always taught us that the way we pray, the way we live, the way we act, the way we move is our and us and we. So our Father, who art in heaven, well, where's heaven? Well, heaven's simply where what God wants done is done. The kingdom of heaven is where God reigns because he's the king of heaven. It's simply a way of saying what God wants done is done. And, and here's, here's the thing that comes after this, right? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Well, what does hallowed mean? Well, it's, it's to lift up, it's to give glory to and, and the harsh reality of, that we live in is this, that our lives, your and mine, they either reflect God's goodness or deny it. God's holy name is either hallowed or desecrated. We either hallow it or desecrate it. The, the, every choice you make either draws you closer to Christ and his kingdom or further away. Every move that you make is watched by others and they either believe in the Jesus that you claim or they do not. Based on your actions. We're either hallowing God's name or we're desecrating it each and every day, multiple times a day. So our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. God, you bring glory to your name. Help us bring glory to your name. So that's week one. Week two is thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You're simply saying the same thing twice. That's exactly what it is. Thy kingdom come is for thy will to be done because it's God's kingdom. And so we're just saying it over and over and over again. And you'll see that throughout the prayer. Eugene Peterson in his uh, masterful translation called The Message And when it comes to this passage, he says it like this. You're praying to God, do what's best. As above, so below. That's that's what it is. For thy kingdom to come, thy will to be done. Because only God knows what's best. And things get out of whack when we think we know best and try to get God on our agenda. So we're asking God, do what's best for me, for my friends, for the world, because you know best right here on earth as it is in heaven. And so you, you might have guessed this, that in a kingdom, what the king wills is done. And here's the thing. You have a kingdom. What you have say over. Now, in, in many marriages, what this means is that the husband has the garage. Right? That's his kingdom. He gets to rule and reign. And oftentimes, the rest of the family has everything else. 
You know this is a problem when you hear dad or your husband uh, say, where's my tool? Because that's in my kingdom. Somebody's been in my kingdom because my tool's not where it's supposed to be. And when you, when you have rubs in your kingdoms, right, that's where it happens. And the, and the biggest rub of all is, of course, our kingdom against God's kingdom. So you all have a kingdom. We have a kingdom. The question is, what are you doing with it? And is it in the right place of order with God's kingdom? Again, Adam Hamilton would say it like this. He says, we come to a moment of decision, my and mine, or thy and thine. All day, every day. Mine, mine, thy or thine. So as we pray, thy will be done, saying to God, whatever you want, God. We place our will under God's will. Are you allowed to have a will? Absolutely, of course. You have needs, you have wills, you have things. That's all good. As long as we recognize that it sits underneath the ultimate will of God. Because that's the only way we can really know what we're to do. God's will first, then our will. Eugene Boring, who's the New Testament professor at Texas Christian University down in Fort Worth, he says it like this. He says, the Lord's prayer begins not with human needs and desires, but with the honor of God as God. And so often, if we're not careful, we'll just start to pray about what we want, what we need, what we think, what we want to have happen. And that's not how Jesus taught us to pray. Jesus says, first begin, our Father, remember who he is. Who art in heaven, where whatever you want done to be done. Hallowed be your name. Honor God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Whatever you want, God, do that on earth as it is in heaven. And once we get that set, then we can move to this week. Give us this day our daily bread. We honor God first, and then we can come and ask for what we need in its right place. Seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus will say in the Sermon on the Mount, which surrounds this prayer. So you would say, well, this is, this is an easy one. I got this one, Pastor Mark. Right? Some of the other ones are hard, but not this one. What does daily bread mean? Well, it's a little tricky because the word daily here, this is its first use in the history of the world. So normally, if you're a scholar and you're looking at words, you like to look at, well, what's the precedent? What does daily mean? Well, what do you do if there's not one? What if there is no precedent? Well, then it gets even more tricky. What was Jesus' first language? How did, what did Jesus speak in? Aramaic. What was the New Testament first written in? Greek. So you're going to translate from Aramaic to Greek. That's not a clean translation necessarily. Any of you have done languages, you know this to be true. And then, any of you all speak in Greek as your first language here? No, probably have a different language. Most of us, that's going to be English, so you're translating from Aramaic to Greek, to English. And you will not be surprised that there's not unanimity in what exactly that means when you translate it over and over again. So what does daily mean? Well, as you translate it from the Aramaic to Greek to English, the word in Greek is epiousion. That's easy to say. Try it three times. And it means continual or necessary, the bread we need to exist, both body and soul, much more than just simply bread. It's more than that. It's richer than that. As Megan said to the kids, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. So yes, we we start with God, and then we come to the people of earth. We give us our daily bread. Of course we have needs. And they're needs that only God can meet. Only God can meet when we follow his will. So Jesus invites the hungry and the full to pray for physical bread for all of God's children. 
Because notice it isn't, hey, God, give me some food because I'm hungry. That's not the prayer that Jesus teaches. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Well, who's our? Everybody on the planet. And I think you already know this. But as a reminder, there has always been enough food on the planet to feed every human on the planet. That's always been the case. The problem is not supply. It's distribution and an act of the will. That's why people starve. Not because we don't have enough food. We just have more of it in some places and some of it rots. Because we don't want to pay the price to get it to where it's needed. That, that's the truth of, of starvation in our world. And, and it is difficult to deal with, and we're going to talk about that. But even here in this place, uh, right here in Edmond, Oklahoma, there are people who are hungry. They don't have adequate food. Just a few, weeks, uh, a few years ago now, in 2019, more than a third of Americans were living below the poverty line. Uh, those who were living below the poverty line, and poverty line is roughly $13,000 for a single individual or $26,000 for a family of four. They were food insecure. So they either didn't have enough food or they had the wrong kinds of food where if they didn't get some help somehow, they were, their children and their families were going to be malnourished. They were going to underperform because they couldn't think straight because they were hungry. They were malnourished. And that happens right here in, in some fairly wealthy places in the world. So it's a real need, and, and we pray about this. Not, not as something that we expect God to do on God's own, but for God to use us to transform the world. To bring the kingdom. To be kingdom people. So Jesus shows us that it is appropriate to ask God to provide for those needs. Whatever those needs may be. But it's much more, friends, than getting only what you need while your neighbor suffers. That was never offered up. It was never get yours and good luck. That's not the prayer. It's give us this day our daily bread. And Jesus knew this. I mean, really everybody in Judaism knew this. The, the law, uh, as many of you know in the Torah, is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right? The book of the law. And, and, and folks in Jesus, they would have known this forwards and backwards. And in the law, thousands of years before Jesus, it said this. God says, if there is any among you in need, any, a member of your community in any of your towns, any of them, within the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted. Toward your needy neighbor. Because God knows that's our first sort of inclination. Take care of yourself. Rather, God says, you should rather open your hand willingly, lending enough to meet the need, whatever it may be. And then God gives us a warning. Because he knows how we are. God says, be careful, friends. Be so careful. That you do not entertain a mean thought. Thinking the seventh year... The year of remission is near, and therefore view your needy neighbor with hostility and give nothing. Your neighbor might cry to the Lord against you, and you would incur guilt. Well, what does that mean? In their culture, every seven years, all debts were forgiven. All of them. And so there's all, you all, we all have that friend. That, you know, at six years and a half month with only a couple months to go, they want to take out a big loan. Right? Because they don't want to have to pay it. And how do you feel about that friend? Nobody likes that guy. It happened then, it happens now. There's always opportunities, people who are going to take advantage of the situation. And God says, I know that. But don't let that harden your heart. Don't, don't let that harden your heart. He says, rather, give liberally, God says, 
and be ungrudging when you do so. For on this account, the Lord your God will bless you. God will bless you as you give liberally and ungrudgingly in all your work and in all that you undertake, since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth. That's just the truth of it. I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and the needy neighbor in your land. Open them up. Bless those. Because God knows as we go by someone in need, our first thought is, I'm not doing that. They might not spend it correctly on what I think they should spend it on. I'm not doing that. They, they're, they're responsible for their situation. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's not true. And we, we need to be sober about this. I've never seen a two- or three-year-old toddler who was um, malnourished or dying of starvation that I could point to what they had done wrong. Could you? Other than the choices that maybe their parents or their grandparents are made, or maybe just the government that they're under made for them. We have to be really careful about what we project in order to protect ourselves from guilt. Because it may or may not be true. Most likely not true. Think of it this way, friends. If God's will were fully obeyed, there would be no poverty. Not any. But until that time comes, there will never cease to be poor people. Jesus knows this. And God's law must remain in force. The only problem with that is God's law is not in force anymore. It's just not. All you have to do is look around and know that it's not. People do what's best for them. And people die. Of starvation and war, of famine, illness. Now, up until America, there were governments that basically were theocracies where God's law reigned. That was certainly true for Israel and in Judaism. There was God's law, and so the people were mandated to do what God's law required in the Church of England. And in England at one time, that was the rule of law. And so our founder, John Wesley, and his father, Samuel, when when somebody broke the, the law in their church, well, they were both sheriff and priest. I mean, they exacted from folks because they had broken the law. I'm glad it's not like that anymore. I wouldn't want that job. A terrible job. But make no mistake, friends. We, as God's people, have to bring God's law back into the culture, back into the world, because it's not on its own. We don't live in places where God's law reigns. We make the laws. We're a democracy. We're not a theocracy. So Jesus says, he, he owns this. He says, yes, you always have the poor with you. That's true. But you do not always have me. He's speaking to disciples. So he knows Deuteronomy. He knows what's what. And his little brother James um, ex- expands on this. He says, so if a brother or sister is naked, because they will be, and they lack daily food because that still happens, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? It's a terrible witness. It denies hallowing of God's name. So faith by itself, if it has no works, is what, friends? Dead. Now, you're not saved by your works? Of course not. But James is going to say, if, if you say you have faith and you have no fruit coming from that, then you've got to wonder, are they saying the truth? Probably not. Just two years ago in 2020, the poorest country in the world was Burundi. And they had an annual income at that time of $270 a year. A year. Now, with just some quick math, you know roughly what you make or your household. And you know as well as I do that most people in this room make more than $270 
every single day. Every single day. And you're also smart enough to know that that's a ratio of 1 versus 365. It's actually worse than that because we don't work 365, but you get the idea. So what do you do with that kind of differential? What do you do with that reality that this is our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Is this God's will? Of course not. Give us our daily bread for everybody on the planet. We've got a part to do with that. And we have to actually ask God, okay, what do you, what do you want me to do with this? You can't do everything, of course not, but we can do something, and we are. So when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we are praying for those who struggle, and we're praying, use me and others so that all of us may eat. That's the way Adam says it. That's right. And sometimes it's really super clear about how we're helping, and sometimes it's really, really not. So I was so proud of our confirmands and our youth group when they were down at Lazarus Community this last week, and they were serving the homeless in Oklahoma City. Pretty clear about how we're helping. Back in 2003, roughly, um, I had a friend of mine who I was in seminary with ask me to go to Nigeria and help plant churches there. His name was Sunday Anoah. And I was very young at the time. I'm the guy on the right and the green. Now, Sunday's in the middle. I don't know the other guy. He was from some other church somewhere. I forgot his name. Um, but, but here's the deal. I was young enough and prideful enough that I thought I was actually going to help plant churches in Nigeria. I didn't know anything. I mean, I'd, I'd been, you know, a minister for a few years. But I thought, okay, we're going to do that. We're going to start churches, and we're going to build the first radio station, Christian radio station there, and it was going to be great. Well, we, we fly into Lagos, and, and I had little boys at the time, and then we were, I was supposed to teach. I was supposed to train in the seminary in Amoya. And this, this is their seminary, you know, concrete everything, just open. And I went to the rector, and we were talking about what we were going to talk about and how we are going to do it. And, of course, the contexts are very different. And he said, he said Pastor Mark, I don't, I don't think we're going to be able to do our training today. And I said, why is that? And he said, because of the rabbis. And I said, what? He said, because of the rabbis. And I said, I'm sorry, S- slow down. What? He goes, the armed men. He said, our students have been up all night because when they come to seminary, they bring all their belongings with them because that's, that's the safest way to do it. And then the bandits follow them and they jump the razor wire that surrounds the seminary and then they've been in hand-to-hand combat all night long. We just got rid of them right before dawn. So they're exhausted. Do you think we could have a prayer service instead where you just pray for them, for the Holy Spirit to encourage them and to protect them and to give them strength and to heal those who have been wounded? I said, sure. It was one of the holiest moments of my life. We, it was like a five-hour prayer service. People just kept coming and being healed and helped. So we left there. and We went to some schools about some of the good work that was being done. Uh, one near Port Harcourt. And there are the kids in their little uniforms. Um, and, and there was always a video crew to kind of show what was going on and you know, what these Americans were, were seeing. They had no idea that I was a pastor who met in a middle school at the cafetorium at the time. And, you know, no, no big deal, but they didn't know that, apparently. And so we'd go to another school, and, and we'd meet these kids. And they were all excited to meet us. And then they took us even further out into the bush, out into the jungle, uh, for an orphanage. And I met this little guy named Miracle. And they call him Miracle because they found him in the bush. And they saved his life, that he is a living, walking miracle. And the thing that struck me about these little guys like him is that when they would sit them down to feed them, they wouldn't move. They didn't talk, they didn't crawl, they didn't do anything. They just sat there 
to wait for the meal, for, for the food. They just they would not move. They were just stone-eyed. They'd been so malnourished for so long, they had never had the opportunity to have enough to play, to move around, to learn. They were simply lucky to be alive. And I began to really get angry with the Lord, like, what are you doing? I, I was in a full suit the whole time with a clerical collar, and I'm, I'm walking around, and I'm seeing these things. I have no idea how to help. And so the next, and not to mention the fact that wonderful Reverend Sunday, uh, about 48 hours into the trip, said, oh, by the way, I need to go to the capital city of Abuja. Uh, the president's calling me. I might be on his cabinet. I'll see you next week. He said, my friend Cosmo will take care of you. I'd met Cosmo 24 hours earlier. And here I am with the team in a foreign country. It was not going well. And so then we came to the governor's house, the, the governor of, of the obvious state. Uh, Nigeria is about the size of Texas and Oklahoma and maybe Kansas combined, about 366,000 miles. And so we, we go, and, and they, they take us out to the governor's tent. And, and they feed us something called bitternut, which is another way of saying they're hazing you. It tastes terrible. Nobody likes bitternut. They don't even like bitternut. They just want to see if you're serious about coming and seeing them. So, so we do that. Then we come in before the governor's mother. The governor's not there. She's laying down, and we present her all these little gifts that we have, these trinkets that we brought from the States. And, and Cosmo, again, Sunday's not around. Cosmo says, oh, by the way, they're here to see how we treat our poor. Uh, we're about to go to um, this, basically, a, a place that was to protect mentally ill people because there they considered them demon-possessed, and they would kill them or torture them, um, try to drown them or burn them. And so it was a very dangerous place to have mental illness in that country at that time. And so we, we get in a bus, and we go out into the bush. I mean, there are dirt roads, jungle, animals, the whole thing. We get out, and we say, well, how's it, how's it going? And they say, not well. I said, well, well, why is that? They said, well, the, the nurse, the Anglican nurse that was here that runs this, she took ill about three weeks ago, and we haven't seen her. And we ran out of food two days ago. So now I'm in Nigeria watching people starve to death. And I'm like, this is really not going well. And I'm pretty angry at God at this point. Like how, I'm, I know you call me here. I'm trying to be obedient. I don't get it. And then I heard sirens. And I thought to myself, well, Chantel's a widow. I'm not coming home. They're going to, you know, whack us out here in the bush. And I was really surprised when the governor's mother showed up with enough plantain and corn and rice and food to feed the entire place for three months. Because they'd used us as pawns to shame the government into actually caring for their people. And God moved in ways that we didn't know, didn't understand, couldn't have predicted. But God moved. Give us this day, our daily bread for everybody, and, and do what you need to do to make it happen, God. That's what that prayer means. And Jesus describes this in really stark detail. Jesus describes the final judgment about how we're all judged at the end of time this way. And it's all about how we treat the poor. It's not about your theology. It's about how you live, about your heart. And is it pointed toward God and God's people and your care or not? So Jesus says it this way, when the Son of Man, the name he uses for himself, in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory, and all the nations, all of them, will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another. Shepherd separates sheep from goats, and he'll put the sheep at his right hand, the goats at his left hand, and then the king, God, will say to those at his right hand, come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom 
where what I want done is done. Prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. This is how we're judged. And the king will answer them. Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, the whole family, you did it to me. In case we missed it the first time, then God will also answer them. Truly, I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. This story is much broader than that. I recommend it to you in Matthew 25. So here's the thing I want you to know. At least in this group, in this church, we are doing some things. We're not doing everything because you can't, but we are doing this. In the first three months of this year alone... We sent $10,000 to feed the children in Afghanistan, which at the time was the worst refugee crisis in the world, with millions starving. So we raised $10,000 largely because of the youth group. They did 30-hour famine. They raised about three, dollars $4,000, and then the mission funds brought in about three or $4,000, and then other money was raised, and so we sent that. We felt really good about that. And, of course, Ukraine happened. So on Ash Wednesday, we took that offering, and we put that together, and other people put that together, and we sent $14,000 directly through Methodist churches there in Ukraine and in Poland and in Slovakia to care and to feed and to house and to give medicine to the real needs on the ground in real time, faster than anybody else can do it because we already have churches there. And then this week, we sent another $7,000 to actually purchase a tiny house for a homeless family so that they actually have a place to live until they get trained, and can actually find a place on their own. That's what it means to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Just in the first three months of this year alone, you've done that. It's also more than that, because throughout the Bible, bread is a metaphor for something much bigger than just bread, bigger than food. Jesus answers them. It is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He says this to the devil in the temptation story. And Jesus was teaching us to ask for and receive the bread that satisfies our soul. So Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. It's more than just bread. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. God is the answer. His will is first. And God created us for much more than consumption, friends. Much more than that. You're a child of God for the very transformation of the world. Jesus says this in the Gospel of John. I have food to eat that you don't know about. And the disciples, they were confused by this. They said to one another, surely no one's brought him something to eat. And Jesus says, come on, guys. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. So what is Jesus' food? To do the will of the Father. Who is the bread of life? Jesus, what does the bread of life do? The will of the Father. What does that mean? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying the same thing every line, every time. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day the ability, the power to do your will in this work. It's just the same thing over and over and over again, so we cannot miss it. That we're to be about God's kingdom and not our own. And for the early church, it was even more significant than that. Because it was a prayer for God to end the world. That's what they thought was going to happen. To bring the heavenly banquet, just like we pray every time at communion, to bring the heavenly messianic banquet to earth. And this is why we struggle with the New Testament so often. Because people, think of this. Jesus is born. He teaches. He dies. He's resurrected. People see him more than 500 at one time for 40 days. And he's around. And he ascends. 
And he says, I'm coming back. And they didn't think 2,000 years later. They thought Thursday. Right? Because they saw him. He died. He came right back three days later. This trip might be a little longer. Maybe six days, seven days. We expect him back Thursday. Which is why you have all these teachings like, if you're having a hard time in your marriage, stay married anyway. Don't get divorced. Because the world's going to end on Tuesday anyway. If you're single, stay single. You don't need to get married. Because why? The world's going to end on Tuesday. And so all these teachings that Paul has, you have to put in this frame of what scholars will call the parousia. Because they never envisioned. They really thought when Jesus said he was coming back, they would see it in their lifetime in the next few days. And so each day that we're here at the altar rail, we reenact this. What they're praying is for God to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth where only God rules. And there is no one who's hungry. And there is no war. And there's no pain. But make no mistake, God's in control of it. And this is the moment when God's people sit down together with enough food for all. Where that prayer is finally answered in its fullness. Give all of us this day our daily bread. And it happens. And it will happen. And you've got the opportunity to be a part of it. You'll get a foretaste of it here in just a bit. As our confirmands serve us our meal. To remember that that day's coming. And we can hasten it by our actions. And you may say, well, that's a lot, Pastor. And it is. What, what could you possibly expect me to do about it? Again, we can't do everything. We can do something. Here's one of a thousand ideas that you could do. Simply choose one meal a week to fast. Lunch is easy. You say, you know what? On Wednesdays, I'm not going to eat lunch. And normally, I would go out with a colleague that's 10, 15 bucks. For others, it's 5 or $3. And you just, you just keep track of that. So next month, you don't eat. You know, for four Wednesdays, you got 20 bucks. You give it to the regional food bank. That makes a difference. Doesn't it? And give it to Edmund Mobile Meals. You could pick up a route for Edmund Mobile Meals. There's a thousand ways that you could take a step to help someone. And just because we can't help all the people doesn't mean that we're not called to help one person, which we can do to bring God's heaven to earth. So, with great boldness and joy and thoughtfulness, let's pray the most dangerous and wonderful prayer that's possible that the Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.